Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 7, where we're continuing our series in Leadership Under Fire, considering the life of Moses, and coming to chapter 7, where we see the beginning of the miraculous signs that Moses performs and the plagues that begin to come at the hand of God. Exodus 7, reading verses 1 through 13 as we look to God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the The Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Father, we pray that the meditation of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. Give us your light as we consider your word. We trust in you to be our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. This coming Friday, February 23rd, you may already know, is the 200th anniversary of the House of Commons vote in 1807 that abolished the British slave trade. William Wilberforce had labored for this result for decades Year after year, his legislation had been voted down again and again and again. And year after year, his colleagues who had initially stood with him, 40 of them originally in the independence as they were known, gave in to political lures and gave up the fight for plum appointments and other such things. But Wilberforce and a few others pressed on. In the face of sharp attacks and much ridicule and mocking over the years, Wilberforce humbly and graciously stayed the course. And so finally, on that long-awaited February 23rd, when the bill passed and the other MPs, as they were called, stood and gave three hurrahs for him, Wilberforce bowed his head and wept. A powerful example of a life lived in trust and obedience to God, pursuing with single-mindedness a cause that was righteous and good. 
Well, back up over 3,000 years to Exodus chapter 7, and here we find another example of perseverance in the pathway of trust and obey, as we see Moses and Aaron, the calling of God in their lives and what they do here. We have seen in Exodus chapters 5 and 6 in past weeks that Moses' first attempts in calling Pharaoh to let the Israelites go leads only to deeper suffering. The people we read are forced to make bricks without straw, and so they have to go out scouring the countryside for something to substitute for straw in some way. And the leaders of the Israelites complain to Moses and Aaron. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 21, we hear their complaint to them. May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So from a human standpoint, things were not going very well. But God reassures Moses of his presence and power. And we began to see this in chapter 6 last time, and we see it in chapter 7 as well. In fact, that brings us to the first main point that I want us to see, and that is this. The Lord reassures Moses of his will and calls Moses and Aaron to continue to trust and obey. This reassurance and this calling to trust and obey in a difficult course. To sum it, we might to sum it up, we might say this way, we must trust God's power as we obey God's will and leave the results to God. Trust God's power as we obey God's will and leave the results to God. And that applies to many, many different aspects of our walk with God and our efforts in this world. You think about what it was like for Moses and Aaron to come before Pharaoh as they did and demand, thus says the Lord, let my people go. We can imagine something like that when Saddam Hussein was at the height of his power. Uh, he was a man who exercised really absolute power in that given realm that he has, and Pharaoh was like that as well. To think of the uh, fear and trembling, in a sense, that you'd come and stand before an absolute autocrat like that and make demands upon him. Moses and Aaron didn't have any guarantees in a human sense what Pharaoh would do, but they knew the word of the Lord, and they believed the word of the Lord. And we see this principle that we're talking about here in verses 1 through 4, when uh, we are reminded again of God's strategy, we might say God's game plan. In verse 1, basically what God says is, Moses, I am making you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, you are going to speak to him in the place of God, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. And God says to him in verse 2, you are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. So here, here, here was the strategy. Go to this absolute monarch and tell him what to do. That was God's game plan. And then, interestingly, verses 3 and 4 go on to uh, reiterate what God's going to do. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We could do a study of this whole matter of Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And ultimately, uh, we see that one of God's judgments on Pharaoh was that as Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened it. Romans 1 talks about the same thing when there's that refrain in Romans 1. God gave them up. 
God gave them up. One of God's judgments is to, as we harden our hearts, to give us up to a hard heart if that's what we do. But that's not the purpose of our study tonight. What, what, what we see God say here, he's, he will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. And then he goes on to say, then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgments, I will bring out my peop- people. So, verses 3 and 4, God is saying, I will use mighty signs and mighty judgments. He's already explained this a number of times. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush account, in verses 19 to 20, uh, we see God explain this initially to Moses, he says in verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So God is making it clear, and he is reassuring Moses and Aaron that they are to expect expect Pharaoh to harden his heart. Because God's purpose, God's plan is... As, as Pharaoh hardens his heart, for God to display his power in these amazing signs and wonders which he will perform. Now, from a human standpoint, this strategy must have seemed hard to accept. The Israelite foreman who complained, and we read their complaint, certainly didn't like the initial results, did they? Things got worse, not better, at least initially. The people suffered more. It's certainly not a strategy that any of us would have dared to come up with. It was a strategy that set up a test of will, as it were, between Pharaoh himself and and God. But, of course, ultimately God would bring about the result of his will. And doesn't it remind us of the gospel, Uh, the greater work of salvation that God would do in Christ that the Exodus foreshadowed, God sending his son in human weakness to redeem those who were enemies of God, and then to carry this news to the ends of the earth in the simplicity of the gospel preached through human instruments. I mean, it's not a plan that Madison, that Madison Avenue would have come up with in its marketing text. Techniques. It's not the kind of plan that human rulers would use in terms of using power as it's wielded on this earth. No, it's uh, an altogether different kind of strategy. Reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he's talking about the foolishness, as it were, in human eyes of this plan. He says in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. There it is in very stark terms. And nothing really has changed about the way God accomplishes his will on this earth. God reassured Moses and Aaron and called them to continue in this pathway of trusting the Lord, what he had declared to them, 
and obeying his will. You are to say everything I command you, he says. Say what I say. Do what I command you to do, and I will bring the results. And so he reassured Moses and Aaron, and so he reassures and calls us as well in the calling with which he's called each one of us. Speak the good news. You are all called to be ambassadors of Christ. Exemplify the love of Christ to those around you. And you aren't guaranteed how people will react. Uh, Maybe they'll laugh. Maybe at your school, you know, you'll be despised in some way. Maybe they will misunderstand you. Maybe they're going to look at you as old-fashioned in some way or in some other way deride you. Uh, The command of God comes. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do not return evil for evil. All these ways that God commands us to live in this present fallen world, and all of these ways go against the grain of of the common ways of the world. God's strategy, you see, God's game plan, is that you and I trust in his power and keep pursuing a course of obedience to his will. And that's what we see with Moses and Aaron, and that's what we're called to as well. Second main point we see is that the Lord reminds Moses of the ultimate purposes of God. Look at verse 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. There, it gives us a glimpse as to God's ultimate purpose in all of this. It's his own fame, his own glory. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and all the nations around would know as well. And throughout history, the Exodus would be a great marker of God's glory being revealed in the earth. God's ultimate purpose is the glory of his name and the eternal good of those who belong to him through faith. We might ask as we read this text, and if you go on and read chapters 8 through 13 about the various plagues that God sends, we might ask as we read this, wow, why did it have to be so difficult? You know, you read through this account and Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and Tell him, let the Israelites go, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, or at one point he may say, okay, go, but don't, I'm not going to let you do this, and the men may go, but the women may not go, or you all may go, but you have to leave your livestock here, and back and forth, and, and Pharaoh goes back on his word again and again. It's just this battle of wills, as it were, as God's power is unveiled. Why did it have to be so difficult? Why all these plagues? Well, from the human point of view, the answer is because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. But from the divine perspective, the answer is the goal is the glory of God's name. God purposed to reveal his glory. The Exodus was the foremost act of redemption in the Old Testament. All the nations of the area heard of the greatness of the God of Israel. And you can recall, even 40 years later, when the Israelites are entering the promised land, the people in Jericho and all throughout the land, they all are well aware of, of what happened in Egypt and the way the God of Israel demonstrated his power against the Egyptians. The fame of Yahweh was great. 
And God again and again reminded his servants of the ultimate goal of showing forth his glory. And isn't that what God is doing in our lives as well? Maybe on a smaller scale as we think of our lives. But uh, when we hear about and think about and read about the people of God over the centuries and the servants of God who have been used by God and, and how they have been faithful to him, what comes to our mind as we read and hear about their accounts? Do we think of great human power or great human wisdom or great human strength? No. That's not what comes out when you read these accounts, when you read about people like William Wilberforce and what he did or uh, John Newton who was an associate of Wilberforce. No, what we see time and again was not somehow spectacular human abilities in overthrowing slavery in England. What we see is the power of God revealed in human weakness. Isn't that what we see? Notice what we're told in verse 6 of our text. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. I'm not sure why this is included in the text at this point. It's spoken that they obeyed and their ages are given here. Possibly part of the point is that Moses and Aaron are noted here as being old, old men at this point. And what does that mean? Well, the tendency of youth is strength, isn't it? Young men have this sense of invincibility. You know, we hear what our 24-year-old son's doing sometimes in the past few years, and, you know, they're jumping out of airplanes and parachuting, you know, with their group, and they're out, you know, doing some paintball thing and uh, shooting each other with paintball. You know, the kind of things that young men do. You know, there's a sense of invincibility, this brashness. But not so with Moses and Aaron, I don't think. Uh, As you age, there's a greater sense of uh, a loss of self-sufficiency. Your human strength begins to fail. Moses and Aaron, I think, were very much aware of the fact that it wasn't in their power to change Pharaoh's heart. This was something that God would have to do. And God has a way of teaching each of us this lesson that our calling, our calling before him is to trust in him and to continue in this path of obedience to him and know that he is the one who will accomplish the results And the great end result is that God gets the glory, not human beings. Isn't that Paul's experience as we read about his thorn in the flesh, that familiar account when he talks about all his sufferings and talks about the great revelations he had received being caught up into the third heaven. And then in in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about this thorn in this flesh, this messenger of Satan to torment him that was given... It's implied from the Lord as well, ultimately. And he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says this interesting thing, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul was willing, it was like he was saying, let the weaknesses come if that's what it takes to have Christ's power rest on me. 
And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Almost a contradiction in terms. He's saying, uh, if, if, if my weaknesses are what God is going to use, then I will welcome them. Not for the weaknesses in and of themselves, no. But ultimately, for this great end of the glory of God. And how important is, is that we be reminded at, uh, about what's at stake in our lives. It's the glory of God's name. And continuing in a humble path of trust in the Lord and obedience to Him ultimately redounds to the glory of God. Whether people see it or not, whether everyone is aware of it or not, you know that the heavenly host is watching. We read in Ephesians that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the heavenly hosts in the church. Well, our third point is that the Lord himself acts to accomplish all his holy will. The Lord himself acts. Moses and Aaron are reassured in this path of of trust and obey. They are reminded of the great goal of the glory of God. And then we see the Lord himself act to accomplish his will. And in chapter 7, we read the very first miraculous sign. And then the rest of the miraculous signs and the plagues follow after this. But Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh in chapter 7, verse 10. And Aaron throws down his staff as the Lord commanded, and it became a snake. And interestingly, Pharaoh summoned his magicians, and they did the same thing. But we note that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. And yet Pharaoh hardened his heart, just as the Lord had said. And then these other plagues follow. There's a description of them. And it's interesting that as we read through these plagues and see this battle of wills, as it were, the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians are initially able to imitate the, the miracles, the signs that Moses does. So the first one, the staff turning into a snake, they do that as well. The water turning into blood, they do that. And then the first plague of frogs, they somehow conjure up some frogs as well. But there comes a point at which they can no longer imitate the power of God. And in chapter 8, at verse 18, we read this, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not, and the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So now even the magicians are saying, this goes beyond what we can do. This is the finger of God himself. God's strategy is so unique because it is ultimately God who acts. The world may mock and mimic the power of God in various ways to an extent. Satan and the world can attempt to lure followers and deceive and manipulate, uh, kind of imitating God's ways and God's power in some way. But ultimately, it falls short. And think of how Moses and Aaron may have been tempted to feel after they performed this first miracle. You know, Aaron throws his staff down and it becomes a snake. 
And then the magicians do the same thing. There, there was a sense in which they might have felt somewhat intimidated by these professionals. You know, these are the ones who really seem to know how to do this stuff. But ultimately, they kept putting their trust in the Lord. They knew what God had commanded them to do, and they kept trusting in the Lord and following his will. And so again and again and again, they come back to Pharaoh, and they do what God has commanded. And finally, as God acts, Pharaoh relents. And when the firstborn of Egypt is struck down, Pharaoh says, go. And interesting, he adds, and bless me, bless us. He asks at that point. Of course, he continues to harden his heart, and then he pursues them. You and I need not fear the world because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And the enemies of the kingdom of Christ are strong. Pharaoh was very strong. The magicians were strong in a sense. There is a lot of uh, opposition to the kingdom of Christ in this world. It's very obvious, isn't it? Uh, I read an article in World this week about human trafficking, human slavery in the 21st century. And it's surprising how many people are, are in this state of bondage of various kinds as a, as a bond slave or have been put into human trafficking rings of various kinds. I'm not going to go into that any length. But the number that the World article gave was 27 million people worldwide. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? A lot of it in Southeast Asia, Burma, India, in the Sudan, Uganda, other parts of the world. An amazing statistic. And often, criminals who run these forms of slavery are more influential and powerful with the corrupt government officials and the corrupt police in the areas where they live and work than the good guys are. They have power of a form. But what Exodus is showing us here is that nothing and no one can stand before the power of God. And you and I must not be discouraged, just as Moses and Aaron did not give way to discouragement because the power and the glory are God's. We think about the abortion debate and issue that continues to rage in America. I can remember... uh, taking a bus down to Washington, D.C. It must have been about 1988 with a group from our church in New Jersey at that point to protest on uh, 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 Sanctity of Human Life Day, January 20, whatever it is, 1st or 3rd. And seeing 60,000 marchers there in front of the White House protesting Roe versus Wade, uh, protesting this continued existence of abortion in our land, and thinking to myself, boy, something's got to give here soon. You know, that was 20 years ago, and it's still going on. Of course, there are successes and inroads being made and legislation passed in ways, but ultimately we know that God has to work. God has to act. But it, until he does, and looking to him to do that, we need to continue to trust him and obey him in a course of righteousness and seeking him. The power and the glory are God's. And here in Exodus, it's very clear that God does act and he accomplishes all his holy will to the glory of his name. Well, some words of application to to conclude with. The first out of four of these I want us to give is this. Press on in this pathway. Press on in this pathway. Trust and obey. Whatever your circumstances may be, 
God is calling you to trust him this week and walk in obedience to him. You know how the old hymn goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And really, that, I like that hymn because our first goal as we walk before God is to be joyous in the Lord, to find our happiness and satisfaction in him. But whatever your circumstances might be, and I would say in this sense, whatever your suffering might be, whatever the difficulty may be, um, continue. Maybe it's just small steps. Continue in a path of trust and obey. I was teaching a Sunday school class this morning in the biblical counseling Sunday school class, substituting in that class, and we were on the subject of depression, talking about what do you do if you face depression? What is God calling you to do if you can hardly get out of bed? Well, he's calling you to small steps of obedience to him and trust in him, and maybe it's just very small things that you can do, but you need to believe him and trust in him and seek to put one foot in front of the next and press on in life. What does that path of trust and obey look like in your life this week? Maybe you're a young person struggling with the will of God and doing the will of God in the midst of a uh, crooked and perverse society. Maybe you're facing some deep grief in your life, and you know it's hard, but you're called to trust the Lord in in that time of grief. Maybe you're facing temptation of some kind. Maybe uh, an unhappy marriage, and, and you need to stay in that marriage to the glory of God, but it's not an easy thing to do. Or maybe it's a rebellious child, or on and on the list can go about the kinds of circumstances we face. Press on in trust and obey. The second application is this. Don't be put off by the foolishness of God's way. Foolishness with quotes around it. We saw about how the preaching of the gospel is foolishness in the world's eyes. And there are many ways in which the will of God seems to be foolish in the eyes of the world. But you and I know that that is the way God calls us to. I've had an unusual number of instances in the past month of talking to a young person or finding out about a situation of two young people living together outside of marriage. And the thing that struck me as I've interacted with some of these folks or heard about them is that this practice of living together is just accepted more and more in our society, even to the point that now people often look at couples who don't live together as foolish. You know, as if somehow living together is a good idea to prepare you for marriage, which is just the opposite of what God's Word says. But it's so surprising that this is becoming the predominant mindset of the world doesn't even make people bat an eye, as if anything's unusual about that. So what I'm saying is if you are going to live a life pleasing to God, there will be times at which you will seem foolish in the eyes of the world. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be put off by the foolishness of God's way. Press on in obedience to him. Third, don't give up in the face of human hardness of heart. Don't give up in the face of human hardness of heart. Wilberforce faced very sharp attacks. And some of the attacks were from Christian individuals uh, and others who... um, he would have expected would be on his side. James Boswell, who became famous for the, uh, writing the biography of Samuel Johnson, wrote this little ditty about Wilberforce. And have to remember as you hear this, Wilberforce was only five feet tall, so he was very short. Uh, and, he, and 
Boswell wrote, I hate your whittling sneer, your pert and self-sufficient leer. Be gone for shame, thou dwarf with big resounding name. (laughs) How would you feel having something like that written about you? Uh, Don't give up in the face of the hardness of human heart. Even coming from quarters that you would expect encouragement. If you stand for truth, then it's guaranteed that you will see the hardness of human heart in some way. If not in an extreme sense, if not in a Pharaoh kind of hardness of heart, neighbors who you might reach out to and just in a negligent kind of way harden their hearts against the gospel and against you. And I would just say, not only don't give up, but persevere and continue to pray for them because we know that God is able to soften the hard heart. And so don't be discouraged. Remember that God is on the throne and continue to come before him in prayer. But finally, keep in view the glory of God. Our problem is that we tend to want other things. We want lesser things more than we want the glory of God. Isn't that the case often? Yes, we want the glory of God, but so many other things come in our vision and in our view, and we tend to want those things more. But God tells us that he works through his word, he works through prayer, and he also works through suffering. And often suffering is his chosen instrument in our lives. Make it your goal to cultivate a greater love for the glory of Jesus Christ to be revealed. Wilberforce would have been amazed if he could have been alive today and see that a a feature-length movie of his life was being made and that his name was going to become a household word, word like it is, this movie that's going to be released and I hope to get to see it. Um, A contemporary of Wilberforce was William Carey who went, one of the first missionaries. Uh, An interesting sidelight on that, when we think about the glory of God, another contemporary of Wilberforce was Andrew Fuller, a pastor uh, among the particular Baptists uh, of England at that time. And Fuller became the general secretary of the particular Baptist mission agency that sent William Carey and other pioneer missionaries to the field. And then had committed themselves to stand behind these missionaries for the rest of their time on the field. Carey, we know, went to the mission field and never returned to England again. He died on the field. And Fuller is not as well known as some of the others are, but here was this faithful pastor and theologian who became known for his uh, expert theological mind and work, but he lived a life of faithful service and poured himself out behind the scenes. The secretary was the one that visited all the particular Baptist churches and spoke about the missions work that William Carey and others were doing and kept the money flowing to the field so that they could be supported there while he pastored his own church and did all that he was called to do there. One thing that strikes me about Fuller's life is the suffering that he experienced. He and his wife had 11 children, and Andrew Fuller buried eight of them. So three of them lived. He and his wife suffered deeply in that way. And, and one thing that he said was that 
When you bury a child, no other child replaces that ch child. That particular, what you want is that particular child back again. And then he buried his wife as well. But the common link that you see through these men and women, I would say, at that time, Fuller's wife stood behind this as well, Wilberforce, Carey, Fuller, is their common zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ to be known to the far reaches of the earth. And so the missionary movement, the modern missionary movement was begun. And praise be to God because the gospel went out in a powerful way. Keep in view the glory of God. Moses and Aaron were told by God what to do and were assured that he would do it. And he did. And the name of God is praised. May it be so in our lives as well.